Hello, and welcome to Reading McCarthy. Reading McCarthy is a podcast devoted to the consideration and discussion of the works of one of our greatest American writers, Cormac McCarthy. Each episode will call upon different well-known Cormacian readers and scholars to help us explore different works and various essential aspects of McCarthy's writing. My name is Scott Yarbrough, and I will be your host for these forays into the deep wilds, dark groves, back alleys, and badlands of Cormac McCarthy. Our guest for today's episode is Stacy Peebles. She is chair of the English program, director of film studies, and the Marlene and David Grissom Professor of Humanities at Center College in Danville, Kentucky. She is the author of Welcome to the Suck, narrating the American soldier's experience in Iraq, published in 2011, and Cormac McCarthy in Performance, Page, Stage, Screen, published 2017. She is editor of the collection Violence and Literature, and with Ben West, is co-editor of the volume Approaches to Teaching Works Cormac McCarthy, which is forthcoming this year. She is a published widely on the representation of contemporary war and on McCarthy, has been editor of the Cormac McCarthy Journal since 2010. Stacy, it's very nice to have you to the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Scott. It's nice to be here. We've known each other for a good while, and you're one of those people who, who started with McCarthy studies early on in graduate school. A few podcasts back, we had Nell Sullivan, who I speculate may have written the first master's thesis ever on McCarthy, although I'm not sure, but you're, a, you're an early adapter as well, aren't you? Yeah, I actually started as an undergrad. I came to my first conference in 1997. Uh, wow. So before I graduated and started, I started grad school right after undergrad. So yeah, that was that was an experience. And it was my first conference ever, right, uh, as an academic. And I thought, wow, these are great. I bet all of them are this much fun. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then you went to the MLA and said, oh, my goodness, what have I gotten myself into? Well, Rick Wallach said when I first met him uh, back then, he said, you'll love it. It's nothing like the MLA. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who are not part of academia, uh, MLA is Modern Language Association. Many people have their first exposure to it because of the bibliographical style, which is one part of MLA I actually am pretty happy with. But, and Rick Wallach is, of course, one of the original editors and scholars who had so much to do with the formation of McCarthy studies. So what was the first introduction to McCarthy? What's the first book or the first, how'd you come to discover him? Well, earlier on in college, I guess it was uh, around my freshman year of college, my dad had told me about McCarthy. He said, uh, you should read all the pretty horses. And I, I'm from Texas. I you know, was living in South Texas at the time. That's where I grew up. And my dad said, he really gets the dialogue and the landscape. I said, great. And then, of course, I didn't do it. <laughs> so I went to college <laughs> and I had to choose an English class uh, in the spring of my first year. And it was a deal where you could see the books that the different professors were going to teach. And one of them was going to teach all the pretty horses. And I thought, oh, I'll do that. That one looks good. I'll sign up for that class because I didn't you know, have any opinions about the rest of the, <laughs> the other books on the list. But I remember that my dad had said, you know, McCarthy was good. So it was near the end of the spring semester uh, and I was reading all the pretty horses, got started reading. And I thought, wow, this really is good. You know, this is really getting my attention. Like there's these sentences that are kind of stopping me cold. And of course I was living in a dorm, you know, uh, at the university of Texas. And it was a Saturday night my roommates were going to a party. They said, okay, you know, it's time to go, Stace, let's go. Uh, and I said, I can't, I can't go. I got to finish this book, <laughs> <laughs> which marked me, right? Like as an academic, I think, yeah, from that point on. But that was, I, I, that was really when I knew, you know, I wanted to be an English major. I want to, this is what I want to do. It was the first book I think I really had that reaction to. 
Uh, and that was that would have been like I guess just a couple of years after it was published. I think that was 1994 when I read it for the first time. So you can truly say this book changed your life. Yeah, absolutely. When I think about what good literature is supposed to do, I think about that experience, right? And I've read good stuff. I mean, I read Shakespeare in high school. You know, that's all that comes to mind. I can't really remember, right? I mean, I always kind of liked it. I was good at school. I did well in different subject matters. And I thought I wanted to be a journalist. Uh, that's that's what I was kind of thinking I wanted to major in. But I read McCarthy and then, oh no, this, this has got to be it. Something more like this. The die is set. So one of the discussions or one of the terms we've used in discussion, I should say, throughout the podcast is this term McCarthy studies, by which I guess we should say we mean the academic study of McCarthy's works from a variety of perspectives and a variety of approaches. So could you just discuss how it kind of all got rolling and how it picked up steam and all that? Well, uh, just, I guess, a year before the story I just told, right? Uh, Back in 93, there was a first conference, which was a gathering of folks who were interested in McCarthy. I think and to my, I wasn't there, but to my knowledge, that was a lot of academics, but not exclusively, especially in those early years. Conferences, you know, gatherings of people who wanted to, you know, present papers on McCarthy, talk about the different books, um, talk about their interests, you know, what they were seeing in them. Um, were certainly academics, but they could also be um, readers, right? I, you know, I can remember some of those early conferences in the late '90s where you might have, you know, a cowboy <laughs> come in and say, right. I want to explain why what John Grady Cole is doing with horse breaking is so significant, right? In this novel, here's the tradition he's following, you know, here's why everybody's so surprised by it. I mean, there's a lot of non-academic readers who had a lot, who've always had a lot of conversations, right, about McCarthy. Now, that said, um, especially in those early years, I mean, the, the conferences were pretty regular. Um, they were small. They would happen once and sometimes twice a year. As people got to know each other, right, you know, really kind of lifelong friendships got started. But it was still a relatively small group. Right. When I started grad, grad school in 1998, you know, I, was, I knew that I was interested in McCarthy. I kind of thought, well, maybe this is what I want to focus on. But at that time... You know, at the graduate level, McCarthy was not yet someone that you would find a, an entire class devoted to. Right. I wrote my master's thesis on McCarthy in 2000, but I was told, don't write your dissertation on him. Hmm. Right. If you're going to choose a single author, it needs to be someone more canonical. Um, he could be a chapter. That'd be great. But you need to expand you know, expand your inquiry, right? Expand your focus, uh, which was a good idea anyway. At that point, I was I was eager to do that for different reasons, uh, just to you know, become conversant in some you know different authors in different areas. But now uh, it's much more common. I mean, there's dis- dissertations galore on McCarthy, and he absolutely right. He's become, I think, more accepted or even canonical in academia in a way that he certainly wasn't when I was getting started. Absolutely. These days, when we think about the current status of the McCarthy studies, it is a ama- There was a time not too very long ago where it was easy for someone who studied him to say, "I've read every significant study on him. I've read mm-hmm. all the books, all the essays." Uh, Diane Luce used to keep a bibliography of the, all the articles that were appearing in peer-reviewed journals and so on. 
And now, of course, they're all over the place. You really can't be someone who's read every single thing. You may have read about them or you've already read the majority of them, but you can't be a complete or, well, to be redundant, you can't be a completionist necessarily scholarship anymore. Right. Uh, and that was appealing to me, you know, as a new grad student to say, wow, I can I can understand this field, right? Uh, and then I can go to a conference and I can meet all the people who wrote right. the stuff that I read and talk to them about it further. And that was fantastic. I, you know, I felt like I was kind of on the, I guess you'd call it maybe the second wave. If that first wave was a lot of people coming out of Faulkner studies in the very beginning before McCarthy was himself famous uh, with, I mean, All the Pretty Horses is of course what the book right. that made him famous and a really well-known author before that um, he was, you know, known in certain circles, but as a writer's writer, right. That, that curse <laughs> of a label. Right. There's kind of a, kind of a cult to McCarthy, but he didn't have broad spread, spread, you know, fame across, uh, across the literary landscape. Right. But then he became popular, but still is certainly, you know, in the late nineties, you could get your hands on just about everything. And now I, I have all of the monographs. I have all the books and the collections just about, I think I'm missing one or two that are more in the self-published vein, but, and I try for a long time, I was, I was still able to keep up. If I hadn't read it thoroughly, I at least knew about it. And now I get surprised all the time. Like, Oh, Look at this. I didn't know this. Who is this person? I have no idea. That's great. Uh, because this is people, you know, these are people in Australia, Denmark, Sweden, Spain. I mean, you have people all over uh, who are doing great work and adding to the conversation. So that's pretty, that's pretty exciting. And it still seems to be pretty open to those who are outside the normal sphere of the academy. And so I'm thinking of the person I probably label McCarthy's number one fan, Peter Joseph, who is an artist, an author, a filmmaker, and a musician. He's truly a Renaissance man of arts and letters who's written several appreciations of him, as well as painted paintings and written songs regarding McCarthy's work. And Peter's spoken many times at McCarthy conferences as a keynote and plenary speakers and so on. And And he comes at it from an approach where a lot of us in the academy just kind of irritate him. <laughs> In the, in the vein of sometimes the cigar is just a cigar. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> well, no, so, um, so I, I edit, I'm the editor of the Cormac McCarthy Journal, and in the most recent published issue, we published one of Peter's pieces, which is about Rick Wallach's copy of Blood Meridian, right? When he first read McCarthy, you know, and took all the notes and kept it over the years until it's like falling apart and it's got more marginalia than it does text, right? And it's been all over the world. And that's a great piece, right? That's not, uh, you probably wouldn't call it a traditional academic article, no, but, no, but it is, that's what makes it so good, right? It is great fun. And I've, I've heard about that copy of Blood Meridian for years. I don't know if I've actually seen it or if it's just grown so much in my mind and in my memory that I think I've seen it. So I'm not really sure. <laughs> but from the piece, uh, Peter still has it and he's had it rebound and all that for Rick, but Peter still has hold of it as well. <laughs> so speaking of the Cormac McCarthy Journal, this is a peer review journal. Can you tell us what peer review means for the non-academicians who are listening? 
and just talk about the origins of the journal and all that. Sure. Um, so peer review is really a designation of quality in academic publishing, right? So peer review means that um, if, if I'm a journal editor and I want to choose to publish an article in the journal, then that, that essay, that piece of writing needs to have uh, been read and commented on by you know, someone in the field, right? And, and received a favorable recommendation for publication. So peer review is a nice process because if, you know, if we're talking about this conversation that we've all been having about McCarthy for all these years, it's a great way to bring new people into the conversation and give them some feedback, give them some guidance, particularly if they are perhaps grad students um, who haven't published too widely before. But it's a way to put people in touch with each other. Now, peer review is typically what we call blind, meaning that the reader does not know who the author is. Right. Um, and that preserves, you know, a kind of equanimity, right? But to have a reputable journal, then you have to go through that process. Otherwise, you're open to um, accusations of favoritism, right, or other things like that. And so sure. I've certainly had submissions from you know, even undergraduates uh, who have gone through the peer review process. I think even you know, we've published one or two, but even our most established scholars uh, have to go through that process as well. Um, right. And again, that's, it's, it's, important for, it's important for the quality of your publication, but I also think you know, managed correctly, it's the editor's job to make that a good conversation for everybody. Well, and speaking as one of your readers, I can say you push and we really try to provide constructive feedback for pieces that maybe really aren't there. There's a, a lot in the mechanism, which is how should they improve their work? Mm -hmm. What else would you offer for, to get it ready to publish? And I've been a, a reader for a number of journals, and I have to say that the Corey McCarthy Journal is a bit more constructive and favorable than the other ones I've seen, or, or I should say it encourages mm -hmm. constructive criticism as opposed to simply up-down votes or revised votes and so on. Yeah, when I first um, took over the journal, which I did in, in 2010, and I can put that in context here in a minute, but I asked a few other editors I knew, you know, for advice, like, okay, well, what, what, what advice do you have to offer me as a new editor? And Kirk Kernut, uh, who does the Fitzgerald Review, said to me, being an editor is great because it gives you the opportunity to be a good person and to do things the right way, the way they should be done. By which he meant, like, don't just reject a piece and say, no, thanks, it's not for us. You know, don't leave somebody hanging for a million years, right? Be constructive, be inclusive uh, in your right. editing practices. And I've always remembered that because I thought that was such great advice. Like, certain corners of academic publishing have a pretty bad reputation, you know, for being cold and right. dismissive and that that just perpetuates that sort of, you know, exclusivity or elite, you know, kind of sense. And yeah, you don't want to do that, right? You want the conversation, again, you want the conversation to be inclusive and good. <laughs> it's it's going to be a better conversation if you are that. Absolutely. Way. Absolutely. And we should give a, a shout out to Kirk Kernett as one of the, the great good guys mm -hmm. of American literary studies, because he does have such an inclusive and, and generous nature. Uh, I've mentioned before, he's, he's really part of the inspiration for me creating a, the podcast mm -hmm. is the, the great job he's doing with Master to 40, the Fitzgerald short story podcast. Right, right. Uh, how many 
actual subscribers to the journal do you have more or less? And are there a lot of library subscriptions? Uh, are you hooked into databases, things like that? Or Yeah, so I'll back up a little bit because to talk about where we are now, it helps to know <laughs> where it all started, right? Um, so it started in 98 um, when Marty, Marty Priola uh, had, um, a few years before that, had created the Corinth McCarthy website, right. CorinthMcCarthy.com, which uh, pretty soon after that became officially affiliated with the Corinth McCarthy Society. And sort of, you know, as a, as a natural outgrowth, really, of some of these regular conferences, uh, they started publishing essays online, really in an online journal kind of a repository, right, of um, interesting pieces. It was not particularly formalized, but it was still, you know, a place where you could go and, and find this stuff. They decided to make it hard available in hard copy starting in 2001. And so from 2001 to, um, well, until I took over in 2010, it was really a self-published journal, that was, you know, sent to members of the McCarthy Society, which was not very many. Um, it was kind of a small circle of people who largely wanted to read each other's work, right? Right. Which was great. And, you know, it was well-designed, uh, but basically created using PDFs, kind of camera-ready PDFs. And, you know, edit the editorship changed hands a few times. You kind of whoever was willing, <laughs> like, right, like mm -hmm. this year. Um, John Wagner uh, handled it for a number of years uh, and did really well with it. And then everybody, it was, it was kind of ready for a new editor. And then Rick asked me if I was interested in taking that on in 2010. I said, yeah, I'd like to do that, but I want to see if I can put it with a press. Right. Uh, for one thing, because it's a lot of work to do it all yourself, right? The typesetting, copy editing, proofreading, and then mailing, you know, designing, all that stuff. That's a lot. <laughs> it's a ton of work. It's a ton of work. Um, and I did it that way for a couple of years, but at the same time was actively pursuing presses. And I talked to a few presses. One was, you know, interested, but ultimately said, you really can't publish with us because it would cost you too much money. Hmm. Um, you'd have to pay us too much for our services that you wouldn't get it back, you know, in subscriptions. Uh, with your with your subscribe current subscriber base, but then eventually I talked to um, Patrick Alexander, who directs the press at uh, Penn State University, and that was this great conversation where they were quite interested in having us come on to their family of journals, and they could offer us a lot of uh, I guess what I'll call services. Right? I mean, they have professional copy, you know, copy editors. Uh, they do design, typesetting, and very happily for me, um, they would also manage, you know, manage your list of subscribers and do the mailing, right. uh, even for overseas, overseas sus subscribers, which is a big deal. And they handle institutional subscriptions, as well as da online databases, right? So if you're an academic researcher, and you're looking for uh, articles on a particular subject, that's probably how you're going to find them, right? Right. You're less likely to go to a, uh, a library and find a physical copy these days. Right. But you do a search in these databases, um, like Project Muse is a big one. Um, EBSCO. Project Muse, JSTOR, mm -hmm. EBSCO. Yeah, you said EBSCO. Those are the big three. MLA. Uh, yeah, right. Index. The MLA bibliography, right. And so those are downloads. Um, you, It's 
it's probably possible to do that independently, but it's real hard. Um, and so you need a press. and real expensive. Yeah, you need a press to manage that for you. So, so we started with them. Let's see, when was our when was our first issue with Penn State? That was 2015 uh, when we started being published by Penn State, and that was that was a happy <laughs> that was a happy day. <laughs> and so, you know, our subscriber base has uh, grown a bit because of that. Yeah, and also again taking in these institutional subscriptions, it's still not huge. Um, we have far more people who download individual articles from databases. Right. I mean, that's in the thousands. Um, when you look at some of the pieces that have had the most hits uh, or the most downloads, that's really really considerable. That also makes money for both the press and the journal. Right. right. That's how that works, and that's part of how the press can offer us such a good deal is because they get some of that profit, right? They, they, they take some of that profit. Um, I asked Patrick in that conversation, I said, how are you able to offer us this, right? Like we pay a small uh, fraction of um, the membership fees. People, people who join the McCarthy Society and pay a fee, a membership fee, a small uh, portion of that goes to the press. That's right. sort of the trade-off. But still, it's so small. It's basically $10 a member. And then that, and I said, how are you able to do this? And he says, well, this is our, uh, this is part of our mission is supporting journal publishing, which is such an important part of academia and in just, you know, scholarly conversations generally. Um, this is, this is how we make that happen. And I guess those JSTOR downloads, NEBSCO downloads, they pay royalties, right? They pay right. money back to the press. Right. Does any of that come, also comes back to the journal? Uh, it comes back to the society, right. To the society, yeah. great. Which, which again, um, is the sponsor of the journal. Right. And we wouldn't, that wouldn't happen otherwise, right? We wouldn't, if we were just disseminating this ourselves. um, And it has to be, it's, I don't think that happens with MLA, right? That's a different deal. But with news and EBSCO and JSTOR, yeah, that's, that's, that's where the money, (laughs) that's where the money is. (laughs) Absolutely. How often are we to look for our next copy of the Cormac McCarthy Journal in our mailboxes? How often do you publish? Well, when we started, we were annual. And when when the journal started, it was mostly annual. (laughs) There was a year or two that were left out. Part of what I had to do before I could even talk to, talk to presses was to catch it up. I think it was a couple of years behind right. um, to get enough material where I could do that. But I mean, there's always a lot of good material. Um, that's one of the nice things about McCarthy studies. But now, uh, ever since 2016, we have been biannual. So we publish uh, once in the fall, once in the spring. Um, got one coming up um, that I need to look at the second proof <laughs> of before. <laughs> Monday, you know, we were talking about uh, both academic and non-academic, you know, people who study McCarthy. Uh, and we've got an article by a guy named Ryan Crane, who is a surgeon. Oh, wonderful. But wrote a great piece about uh, T.S. Eliot and the Golden Bough and Blood Meridian. So that's uh, something coming up in the next issue. What's wonderful is when you said we have a piece by a surgeon, I thought he was going to write about John Grady Cole taking a red hot <laughs> pistol barrel and shoving it into a wound in his leg and whether this is good frontier medicine or bad frontier medicine or <laughs> something that is bad, but they used to do it or something's good. We should go back to it. Forget all this modern surgery. Let's just get hot pistol barrels. Uh, and instead he's writing about T.S. Eliot. So that's absolutely wonderful. <laughs> right. Right. And again, you know, this is one that uh, has been through peer review, been through that process, you know, has been revised with input and now is a really nice piece.
So given the burgeoning state and that we have, uh, I have to tell you, we have listeners all over the world on this podcast. It shows me how much has grown. People in Germany uh, and India and Pakistan, uh, all these different countries. And that's taken me a little bit by surprise. So it doesn't surprise me at all to, to know that we have scholars in all those places who are who are sending you materials as well. So what what's new in McCarthy's studies? What's what's coming up that's kind of different from what we've seen in the past? Well, I guess I'll start by saying one thing that has not changed for some time is that most pieces, you know, most scholarship, uh, if you're looking at the novels by McCarthy that uh, are most often covered, it's still Blood Meridian and The Road. So those are the ones that are most most often represented just because they're so right. rich. Um, you think, aren't we done saying things about Blood Meridian yet? No. Um, another piece that's coming up in this next issue by uh, Joey Isaac, Isaac Jenkins is about um, queerness and interspecies violence in um, the border trilogy. Wow. So that's, you know, there's been some, uh, I think, you know, queer studies of McCarthy, but not an awful lot. And this is, I think, a relative, you know, a fresh, a fresh reading. So there's always kind of new takes. But that said, we do have the essay from a couple of years ago, the Kakule problem that uh, some people have written about, you know, this was McCarthy's first published uh, nonfiction, accepting a tiny piece he wrote in high school that's not widely right. available, right? Uh, and that's philosophically and biologically, uh, you know, rich <laughs> and has provoked a lot of conversation, but um, certainly that's not done. Uh, there's a lot more to be said about that. You know, we're all, of course, uh, we have been waiting, you know, for a long time about, for McCarthy's next novel, uh, which we know is called The Passenger. Uh, in fact, you know, Diane Luce was writing about McCarthy's forthcoming novel uh, in the first issue, uh, the first published issue in 2001. That was the first hard copy. And I went back and, you know, was looking at her editor's introduction. And yeah, Diane Luce was saying, so we await the passenger. Wow. We await this book. And so we, we still are, right? Uh, all these years later. So it's this is a book written in the way that Sutcher was written. Even more so, right? Yeah. Very long time. 15 year window. And this one's now we're on 19 years since 2001. Or, right. Or I guess adding up on 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. So that, I mean, Diane herself has already published a bit about McCarthy's correspondence that references his creative process with the novel. Um, that was, I think, also in the last, the most recently published um, journal issue. And so there is, you know, we're starting to see some work, even though this novel hasn't been published yet. So we can only imagine that um, that will be <laughs> the next big thing, as they, as they say, even if, I mean, God forbid, you know, McCarthy himself were to, were to pass away before it's published in the mode of David Foster Wallace's The Pale King, I think there would still be a lot to, to work with, right? right? A lot to say about it, even if, you know, again, God forbid that were to happen. Um, so we know that's coming. You know, Lydia Cooper, among other people, is working a lot on complexity theory, uh, which, ah. right, which we know we know because of McCarthy's involvement with the Santa Fe Institute, he's been interested in for a very long time. She's working on a monograph. You know, others have been working on articles. Um, so there's a lot. There's, you know, McCarthy's already always leading you to a new place, it seems like. One of the things that's interesting about him, and I guess I would compare him to favorably to other writers is he hasn't stayed the same. Hmm. 
if you draw a line from when Faulkner really hits his stride with Sanctuary through the later stage in his career, all his best work is kind of in the same vein. Mm-hmm. You know, he has he writes a book about circus air pilots mm-hmm. who would you know pylon, which is not particularly good. And he writes his worst book. I would contend is the allegory he wrote about World War One. You know, a fable. But it, all the good stuffs more or less all coming out of the same place. And I think you could say something Hemingway keeps trying to change. And I don't know how successful he is with it. If you look at something like green Hills of Africa or cross river into the trees, those certainly are not firing on the same cylinders that the first three novels and old man of sea are firing on Mm -hmm. as well. But then with McCarthy, we've got what he does in the Southern books, which hits kind of apotheosis with such And then you've got, Blood Meridian is this kind of standalone Titan, then the Border Trilogy, and then the last two novels, not to mention, you know, your great love, the screenplays mm. and and adaptations that and plays that he works on throughout this same time period. And so he's he's definitely someone who doesn't stand on his own, you know, laurels or rest on his laurels, I should say, or stand still. He keeps moving. Right. And I think that's Part of what's made him so interesting to read. That is true. You know, stylistically, the road is very far from Sutri, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it's not so far. No, right. I was just thinking, if you look at those two novels that have been the most popular for scholars, Blood Marie and The Road, there's a lot of connections to be made between them, certainly. But stylistically, yeah, they're super different, right? Different concerns, different worldviews, arguably. <laughs> yeah, I think so. He takes in, he seems to, when he you know finds a new interest or something new to focus on, he doesn't do it halfway. And that's, you know, going back to my dad, you know, recommending all the pretty horses, you read it and you think, well, this was written by a Texan. You know, he, he gets the turns of phrase. He knows the vocabulary. He knows the ecology. He's got, he, he can not only effectively echo it, but he can make it really funny. Uh, whereas you just hear it, you know, you just hear it in your head. And so I was shocked when I found out, oh, he's not from there. <laughs> you know, yeah. he's, he's, you know, born in Rhode Island and then raised in Tennessee. And I thought, Tennessee, come on, right? Well, not, and not only that, but again, born in Rhode Island with a father who's, you know, a little bit of a outsider, a northern guy who comes in to work mm-hmm. for the TVA, which certainly didn't make him everyone's welcome dinner <laughs> guest uh, necessarily. Right, right. Henry James has this quote, and I'm going to mangle it, but it's something along the lines of try to be one of those people upon whom nothing is lost. Hmm. And probably in McCarthy, more than anyone, we see that realized in the writer. Nothing's lost on him. He hears everything. He takes it in and absorbs it. It's, it's amazing. No, and in his early years, you know, it was what I think of, you know, as more classic philosophy. And then more recently, it's been science, which, of course, is, you know, fascinating, fascinating to all of us, right? Uh, but so much so that yeah, he'll take an office at the SFI. Uh, he'll <laughs> talk to new you know physicists and theoretical physicists and economists working in this kind of conceptual level and you know all of these theories that um, presumably yes you know you'd have to do some work to get into that conversation, but he can do that work and do it well. And so in that sense, he's a great model, I think. And that means all of us in literary studies who like to read half a book and five or six paragraphs and then think we're an expert on something can start, <laughs> right? you know, oh, I know my complexity of science. I read this book and that article and that page. So now I'm going to hold forth while I talk about it. In this. Yeah. It's a little harder. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, well, yeah. You can, you can fake the Freud a little easier than you can, can fake some of these guys. I suspect. <laughs> I think that's right. <laughs> 
So let me ask you this question because I ask it to all our guests. What is your favorite McCarthy book and why? See, I like that question because um, my film students, you know, I, I teach both literature and film here at Center. My film students always like to ask me, what's your favorite movie? And I've just never landed on a particular one. I have about five, you know, and they kind of shift year to year. And so every year I hem and haw and I have my line about, I need, I just need to lie. So I have an answer, but with, with McCarthy and with just books in general, my answer has been the same since forever. And that's blood Meridian. I mean, so I'm, that's, that's the camp I fall into, you know, we differ (laughs) you and I, (laughs) that's okay. No, that's not true. Blood Meridian is among the, the upper echelon for me as well. I'm, I'm actually one of these people who has a hard time settling and and intellectually, Mm Blood Meridian is one that speaks to the most um, emotionally, you know, it's all the pretty horses mm-hmm. or Sutri and, yeah. and sometimes the, the road, the road's my favorite to teach. Right. Agreed. Yes. Yeah. The road teaches like a dream. It's that perfect sweet spot <laughs> of yeah. really affecting you really draws you along, but in, you know, of incredible depth, uh, all these different ways you can tap it. Yeah, you know, Blood Meridian, um, when I first read that, I had read Pretty Horses um, in college, right? And then I read The Crossing. At that point, Cities of the Plain had not yet come out, right? The third Border Trilogy volume. And I was, uh, I was, in, I was getting closer to my senior year, and I had to write a senior thesis uh, as part of my undergraduate program. And I thought, well, I know, I'll write my senior thesis on the three... McCarthy's three Southwestern novels, as I kind of thought of them at that time, Blood Meridian, All the Pretty Horses and The Crossing. Now, I hadn't read Blood Meridian yet, but I thought, well, I'll throw that in there. Then I'll have three three chapters, like th- three short chapters like that'll work great, right? Um, <laughs> then I read Blood Meridian and I thought, oh my God, what am I going to do with this, right? How do, you, how do you write about it after having read it once? You know, and of course I went back and looked at it some more and that just made things worse. <laughs> You know, because there's just so much there, right? But that's my favorite thing about it is it's um, it's endlessly productive. It really is. You can reread it over and over again. I have a friend who's a Joyce scholar, and we wrote a, a book together. And part of the book was trying to define what do we mean by literature, something mm. being literary. His definition is it continuously rewards rereading. Yeah. Meaning your, your favorite mystery novel, after you know who done it, and you're a little bored with the character, is not necessarily something you can keep going back to over and over and over again and mm. get something new out of it every time. You might, it might be comfortable, like you know, an old sweater. It mm. might be like comfort food. You've you know, you've got to have your chili cheese fries on a <laughs> cold day or whatever your comfort food is. And I, I should add, that's probably not my comfort food. <laughs> but Blood Meridian, you can go back to it over and over and over again, maybe more than all the rest of them, with possible exception of Sutri, which is equally dense mm. and complicated. Right. Right. No, and that's why they are, um, I occasionally do teach classes devoted entirely to McCarthy, which, you know, couldn't have done (laughs) uh, 15, 20 years ago. But, you know, my students continually surprise me in their readings, right? And the things they find to talk about. That's another, you know, as I have ended up as an academic, you know, which was foretold (laughs) all those years (laughs) ago on a Saturday night. But yeah, not only your own reading, but then your students' readings. That's, That's what's fun. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Stacey. It's been wonderful, and we hope to have you back in the near future. Yeah, that'd be great. Maybe for the gardener's son? Maybe so. Yeah, that's a fun one. You wouldn't think that's got as much to it, but it really does. So maybe so. 
Thanks again to today's guest, Stacy Peebles. Dr. Peebles is chair of the English program, director of film studies, and the Marlene and David Grissom Professor of Humanities at Center College in Danville, Kentucky. Her books include Welcome to the Suck, narrating the American soldier's experience in Iraq, and Cormac McCarthy in performance, page, stage, and screen, and the edited collection Violence and Literature, and she is a co-editor of the upcoming approach on volume on Approaches Teaching the Works Cormac McCarthy. She has edited the Cormac McCarthy Journal since 2010. Thanks also to Thomas Fry, who composed, performed, and produced the music for Reading McCarthy. The views of the host and his guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their home institutions or the Cormac McCarthy Society, which is a downright dirty shame. Download us on Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're agreeable, it'll help us if you provide favorable reviews on these platforms. To contact us, please reach out to readingmccarthy at gmail.com. And although I regret to tell you, we are on Twitter and you can find us on Facebook.